This is Los Altos Institute's History of Green Politics in North America course. I'm Stuart Parker, I'm the instructor, and uh, as with all of the courses posted to this archive, uh, the discussion portions of each class have been edited to remove participants who wished to be anonymized. So expect a single coherent lecture followed by a discussion that might have a few uh, choppy bits. So we actually moved a little ahead of where um, I'd intended to get last time. And so uh, because I'd introduced John Muir, I'd talked about his organization and some of that I was, was stuff I was supposed to do today. So um, we're now a little bit ahead of the game here. So I thought that um, I would um, be able to go in a little bit more to the progressive era and to the way that the shape of the Sierra Club changes over the course of the, uh, the progressive era. So first of all, the progressive era is a particular time in history that we normally associate with the period from 1890 to 1926. Um, and there are some highly distinctive characteristics of the progressive era. The first is the master discourse of progress. So in terms of like the mainstream conversation that's going on in society, Everyone has agreed that the goal is progress. And everybody has agreed that the term progressive refers to good things that are going to happen in the future. Um, this is a period when mainline Christianity refers to itself as progressive and situates itself within a progressive understanding of religion. What do I mean by progressive understanding of religion? Well, a thing that was uh, common in um, atlases and encyclopedias during the progressive era was this number line like thing. It was a series of faces, each of which was phenotypically different. And at one end was caveman and at the other end was Englishman. And between them, all the other faces they got lighter um, and under, under the names of these, uh, under these faces were often years. So the idea was that every culture, every race in the world, because race was central to how progressives understood the world, every race was the difference between the races was how much progress a race had achieved. What did progress do? It changed your religion. The more progressive you were, the more Protestant you were. It changed the color of your skin. The more progressive you were, the whiter you were. Um, it supposedly gave you fine features. Um, it gave you emotional sensitivity. And so when a progressive looked at the world, they didn't see different cultures having different historical experiences. They saw different cultures as their own culture at a moment in the past. Um, so ma mainstream political discourse is based around this idea that progress was good, that everybody was becoming richer, whiter, more self-controlled, um, and um, more, uh, more interested in voluntarity in their, their actions. Now, another feature of progressivism um, is this sense that human beings have now attained a level of understanding of the world that makes human designed systems superior to natural systems. 
So progressives were critics of free market capitalism. They argued that free markets, while producing progress, produced progress inefficiently and produced uh, goods and services inefficiently. And that if these markets were managed more directly um, and were more controlled, more progress would be produced. And progressives had the same view of ecosystems. They understood that ecosystems, nature, those were good things, but um, progress would make them better. Uh, I remember many years after the progressive era, but um, if there's a place where progressive discourse really survived, it was in municipal parks departments. I remember in uh, 1988 through 1990 working against um, a retro progressive scheme. Macmillan Blodell had a poor had approached the Vancouver Parks Board and decided that um, uh, Stanley Park was degenerating because of nature and that um, they needed to save the park by clear cutting and reforesting it. And, uh, um, and so I remember the, the head of the parks department, uh, Malcolm Ashford stating, it is our mandate as the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation to condense and improve nature. And uh, it's such a lovely turn of phrase, uh, although generated long after the progressive era, that is largely how progressives thought about natural systems. So you can see how uh, marching the Napier's Indians out of Yellowstone National Park at gunpoint and into the Columbia Valley would be absolutely consistent with the progressive goal of making the ecosystems of Yellowstone National Park work better and be more progressive. So, uh, you know, we've got these, these cluttered humans and all this other stuff. We can impose an order on the world that it otherwise lacks. Um, progressives were not big fans of public ownership. And so, when we look at what progressives tended to do in government, there are many paradoxical things that they did because everything was justified as progress. So segregation was progress. Anti-desegregation was also progress. Everyone who justified anything explained it as progress. So this, um, uh, so, the way progressives saw the best way for the world to work um, had come out of um, this big economic imperative of building the railway. They saw the railways that, that um, had been created by this new kind of liberalism before the progressive era as the blueprint for doing other things. And so the preferred way for progressives to do a thing would be for a private company to deliver whatever service, um, that private company not have competitors because competition in a marketplace is inefficient, but to replace market competition with regulatory bodies, uh, with um, uh, telecommunications commissions that would award uh, different uh, broadcast frequencies, um, energy commissions that would regulate how much an energy monopoly could call, charge citizens for the energy that, uh, they, uh, that they consumed. Um, and this is how we see water, energy, all kinds of things that the state takes an interest in during the progressive era are things where the state intentionally creates a, leg uh, a regulated oligopoly. That the regulated oligopoly is the epitome of progressive efficiency, according to the ideas of the age. Now, it's interesting, right? Where on the one hand, 
progressives do a whole bunch of anti-democratic stuff. They create the way municipal governments work today, um, which is something called commission government, where you create a voting system that deliberately reduces voter turnout. Yes, the way municipal voting systems work in much of Western Canada, if you go back to their origin, you can see that they were sold to the public as a way of stopping poor people from voting or poor people from having their votes count. So progressives created, um, they didn't like municipal wards. Um, they liked municipal governments to be elected at large uh, in a multi-member plurality system. But they also didn't want the municipal representatives doing very much. It was understood that municipal, these new municipal councils would serve the permanent civil service, would serve the city manager. And I actually saw an extraordinary speech about this in um, Toronto by, I would say, one of Toronto's last original progressive style mayors, uh, David Crombie. Um, I, um, I had gone to, uh, uh, I was one of the few people who opposed the City of Toronto Act that uh, was brought in that ultimately um, lured, lured the Ford brothers into power. And so I was showing up uh, with my friend John Deverell to speak to city council about how the City of Toronto Act with the province was a terrible mistake. And we were about to speak and then word swept through city council that David Crombie, the great Toronto mayor of the 1970s was in the building and he had come to address the council. And so the speaker's list was suspended. And at this point I'd only lived in Toronto for about a year. And I wasn't like, to me, the way people like Preston Manning had described Toronto liberals was something that I had thought was a myth. But this speech was a realigning moment because Crombie came in, immediately the council wanted to hear his deputation. And he began his speech by saying, you have forgotten who the people are who run this city. You are not here to run this city. You are here to listen to the people who run this city and follow their advice. Now, of course, being from the West and having, you know, being from like the old populist West of Preston Manning and Dave Barrett, I thought he was talking about the voters. But his speech was about the senior civil servants who run Toronto and how the city council was their servants and how city council was disrespecting the senior civil servants because the city of Toronto act involved city council taking back too many powers from the city manager's office. So it's, um, we have to understand that this, uh, absolutely, the eugenics movement is, sits right in the center of progressivism. And we can't wholly disagree with them because they're the people who got our municipal water chlorinated. Uh, that was a eugenics project. Uh, most vaccination campaigns were eugenics projects. The funny thing about the eugenics movement is the eugenics movement contained all kinds of projects, but following the Second World War, uh, oh yes, the fluoride, the, the great fluoride debates of the 70s and 80s, um, no water fluoridation then, fortunately, uh, no big fluoride debate to be had. But the thing is, many, the thing that we today call public health was called eugenics during the progressive era. It just happened to include all this other stuff that we call eugenics now, but it was just understood to be part of this large category of public health. And uh, yeah, I think really, it's, I mean, it's such, a, it's amazing how the populist right can still freak out over fluoride. I, I in a way, I, I imagine that's why they keep the issue around in Calgary. There's nothing else to motivate people to get to the polls over. At least uh, we can raise fluoride as an issue. Keeps that um, conservative vote at a floor. 
Now, on the one hand, we see these measures uh, associated with progressivism as anti-democratic, but it's also true that there is a particular kind of democracy that progressives really liked. Um, and it, it had to do with the creation of mass voluntary organizations. So um, uh, prior to the progressive era, the way most organizations in American society and European society, Latin American society worked was that you didn't tend to have mass organizations. If there was like lobbying to be done or advocacy to be done, or a group was supposed to like fundraise for a local hospital or something like that, um, it would be by invitation only. And the point would be to curate a set of influential people that you had invited to show, look at the high standing of the notables in the community who have stood behind this project. You will want to give money to this project precisely because we haven't let you join. Because we are keeping the riffraff out, you know this will be a good project. So cut us a check. And that's, that's, that's very much how organizing worked broadly in the literate world. Um, in fact, it had been the means by which most Latin American independence revolutions had begun. Um, there's a, a name for inviting the notables. It's called the Cabildo Abierto. It's the open town council. What that means is that you don't have to be elected to get on, but you do have to be invited. And so, um, and this is how people thought about their churches and all sorts of things. You didn't vote on your church's board of directors. You contributed to your church, but the people who were invited to be elders would be invited to be elders by other elders, other notables of a certain standing in one's community. Really the only mass organizations in the conventional sense of the word um, prior to the progressive era were um, insurance companies, mutual organizations as they were called. And they went back to the ancient Mediterranean uh, burial societies um, developed in the Hellenistic world under Alexander the Great's successor states and largely retained their character. So anyone could buy in to a mutual society because the whole point was just to collect the money and distribute it as people needed to be buried. Um, and mutual societies grew to include things other than burial, like crop insurance, fire insurance, and the like. But these organizations uh, were mass organizations because they also, like they charged a significant membership fee. Um, you were having, or you were having to contribute every month. There was a constant financial obligation for you to be included in this thing. And interestingly, progressives really took exception to that way of organizing. And the progressive era, even as it was working to restrict people's democratic franchise um, at the municipal level, was concurrently turning forms of vanguard organizing, as the Marxists might say, into mass organizing. And it's no coincidence that the original debate between being a vanguard party and being a mass party, of debate that continues to plague Marxists, one of the reasons they're stuck with that debate was that Marxist parties first formed when that debate first began and that um, the emergence of those parties as self-conscious entities is inextricable 
from a mass versus vanguard debate the entirety of society was having, not just Marxists. So one of the, uh, one of the first uh, things we see with subscription organizations or mass organizations are reading rooms. The library system has not expanded effectively Eventually, Andrew Carnegie will get so cross about that. He uh, will donate uh, huge portions of the wealth he makes as uh, one of America's great manufacturers into the creation of a library system. But the Carnegie libraries really appear at the very end of the progressive era. Um, what emerges before the library is the reading room. Uh, I believe only the Christian science movement still has reading rooms. They have a handful left. Um, but essentially, uh, reading, um, reading rooms are things that anyone can subscribe to. That uh, if you pay a certain fee, you're in for years and you get to make decisions about the reading room and what other stuff to get for people to read. So these private libraries really start showing a model of how to be different. And interestingly, this private library system as a form of mass organizing diffuses outwards globally, not from the imperial centers of Europe, but from uh, Medellin, Colombia that uh, Colombia, uh, Medellin is one of the first uh, cities to develop a private reading room network. And we see the popularity of the reading room starting uh, as, a, as a place to be and a thing to do uh, in the Northern Andes and the urban Northern Andes. And soon they're all over the place. Another significant development that produces this desire for mass organizing, this new form of consciousness and connecting with people is the Women's Christian Temperance Union going rogue. So the WCTU is originally just a, um, a confederation of female majority church congregations um, that, um, that are organizing together. But because the WCTU is essentially the women's organization, it becomes in the United States and Canada a crucible for all kinds of debates, right? Because temperance is just a coded debate about men's violence that uh, because alcohol is a factor in so much domestic violence. Um, temperance is simply the most effective regulatory way of addressing this because you also don't have to say you're dealing with men's violence, right? Everybody gets to save face in a temperance debate because it's trying to not be a debate about beating your wife. Um, but as the WCTU works on this issue, and because at its core is a material analysis of the interests of women as a gender class and their distinctive experience of violence, the WCTU starts doing anti-lynching work. It starts doing suffrage work. It takes on more and more controversial issues and during that process, its longtime leader turns it into a subscription organization that is no longer intermediated by church congregations. And so we see a mass organization uh, in which people are making decisions by voting. And with the WCTU, Robert La Follette, one of the progressives we would have liked, as opposed to Teddy Roosevelt, who's, un, you know, Robert La Follette created the first state progressive party. Teddy Roosevelt created the first national progressive party. They have equal claim on the name. But Robert La Follette, as governor of Wisconsin, uh, championed many of the elements of progressivism that uh, we like today. And one of them 
is the primary system. LaFollette observed that the Democratic Party and Republican Party were like pre-progressive organizations. They were a set, they were a coalition of committees of local notables who had uh, accepted an invitation from other local notables to be the Republican club or Democratic club. Um, neither the Republican party nor the Democratic party ever had a subscription-based membership. And because of what happens in the 1920s, they never develop one. Canada's political formation trajectory is much more common where the parties, well, not common because we've also diverged, but in different ways and more recently, but the parties remained public clubs. They just became public clubs that gradually opened their membership roles over time. Uh, this is not what happened in the US. The primary system essentially democratized these parties against their will. The state of Wisconsin took over, um, the state of Wisconsin took over the membership list of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin and the membership list of the Republican Party in Wisconsin. And it dropped the membership list to those parties to zero. And it conducted its uh, it conducted their internal elections for nominating candidates through the state, and this was done without those parties' consent. This was an attempt by progressives to create an orderly state-regulated election system that included the selection of candidates. Because in a geographically based voting system like first past the post, um, people need some kind of lever they can pull to determine right uh, something about who represents them. So if it's always going to be a Democrat, you should at least let everybody join the Democratic Party. This was the thinking. So and the fact that it, there would be state oversight, absolutely. Um, abs I, I very much agree, Colton. I think. Progressivism is in many ways tacking back to its original definition because of the purge of progressives by conservative parties. So that now all the conservative progressives are in the other parties. So yeah, I think uh, that certainly accelerated some unpleasant things. Uh, now, a couple of other things uh, to sort of round this out. Um, we also see in the 1920s, this new spirit of mass organizing, um, which um, is exploited by, um, well, it's not clear, right? You never know whether con men are just, just think they're paying themselves well or whether they think they're conning people. I mean, I'm sure there are some that have that consciousness, but I think most don't. UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association, uh, run by Marcus Garvey, and the new Ku Klux Klan uh, emerged as the biggest mass organizations uh, in America in the 20s. Uh, the new Ku Klux Klan was largely unconnected to the old Klan. The old Klan was a set of irregular militias uh, invitation only, irregular militias in the South. The new Klan uh, was an organization with membership across the country whose main concern was the presence of Catholics in the country. Um, that although the new Klan still killed more Black people, it spilt vastly more ink on the international Catholic conspiracy. So, um, uh, so it's in this time then that the Sierra Club takes on characteristics that we note today, but incompletely so. Sierra Club chapters are mass organizations because of this period in the progressive era. The National Board of the Sierra Club or the International Board of the Sierra Club, not so much. Uh, so you have a kind of hybrid organization. 
But unless you need the National Sierra Club doing stuff for you, it doesn't really matter. If you're the Akron chapter of the Sierra Club, you can sign people up, you can fundraise, you can organize, and you can do whatever the Sierra Club feels like doing about park space in Akron. Uh, and it's really the environment, the, one of the distinctive features of the environmental movement is that it's a social movement that, that um, in which mass membership has always been a possibility. And in fact, until really the pretty recent past, that was an assumption that uh, Greenpeace for many years concealed the fact that it was not a mass organization, uh, that it was concerned that um, its subscribers would be upset if they didn't know that the democratic rights they were not choosing to exercise didn't even exist. People liked the sense that even if they didn't come to meetings, that by virtue of joining an environmental group, you had a say in what the environmental group did or said. So that I think is, is important for setting up uh, what, happens, um, what happens next. Um, now, a few words about the environmental scene during the progressive era that I missed uh, last time. There are, of course, environmental concerns other than parks during the progressive era. And if you ever hear um, a speech by the Fraser Institute trying to explain why the Fraser Institute is not completely opposed to uh, the ongoing existence of the physical world, um, they will tell you this story. They will tell you that um, the worst thing about progressivism and the thing that uh, true libertarians fought for as few as there were back in the day was the tort limitation laws we associate with progressivism. So just like markets, just like ecosystems, the legal system is also something that progressives thought was inefficient. Just like the free market, just like an ecosystem, there was an unhealthy amount of competition used to resolve questions when in fact questions should be resolved not through competition, but through expertise. So you have this struggle for existence, the survival of the fittest, all that. Isn't it terrible that we use this inefficient system to choose our apex predator? You have all this competition between companies that make the same thing. You know, this is terribly inefficient. Why can't we just resolve it by having an expert pick the company that'll do that? And the same logic underwrites a lot of industrialization. We know that industrialization is progressive. In fact, the Unitarian Universalist Church has so embraced progress as its discourse that um, uh, they would perform blessings of factory openings that um, the creation of new Fordist modes of production um, would be sanctified as the will of God by Unitarian Universalist ministers. So one of the first things that becomes necessary, I said a little bit about this to do with the issue of labor and the virgin soil epidemics, right? When you're doing backbreaking, shitty, gnarly, awful work, that doesn't kill you, that's the kind of thing to use slaves for, right? If you're doing highly dangerous work like mining coal or pouring steel, you wanna use people who are paid by the day. So you don't even have to pay them for the full day if they're killed in a vat of molten steel at noon. So the problem is that too many families started taking industrial companies to court. And so 
the entity we call WorkSafe British Columbia in BC, the entity that starts out with the name the Workmen's Compensation Board in most jurisdictions, is a demand made by the National Association of Manufacturers. So the National Association of Manufacturers um, are being tied up in court. They're having to pay death damages. They never know what a jury is going to award. And so the government says, no, injured workers are losing their right to sue. Injured workers have no right to, um, uh, to sue directly. Instead, we're gonna put a board in charge of these workplace injuries. We're going to limit uh, how, um, we're going to factor the courts out and uh, we're gonna limit torts against manufacturers. Well, one of the, the first tort limitation uh, process Otto von Bismarck is the first uh, ruler to uh, bring in um, this form of tort limitation. The next is the state of New York. I don't remember who the governor was at the time. Uh, but even prior to these forms of workplace tort limitation, the first tort limitation legislation is to protect railroads from any damage they cause agricultural or other forms of production through creosote-soaked tithes, through um, emissions of coal dust, of all sorts of, uh, all sorts of, um, you know, running over people, kids on the line, whatever. Uh, so the U.S. government moves to indemnify rail companies, and it doesn't even set up a tort limitation system. It just says you can't sue those people. That like, get out of here. This railway is in the national interest. You can't pursue a tort against them. Um, yeah, I would agree, Jonathan. I think the Unitarians had long ago given up on God and uh, had moved on to industrial capitalism or at least industrialization. I know many of them will later uh, go on, you know, uh, despotism tours of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, so, this, um, uh, so one of the things that keeps a lot of environmental concern pointed at parks is the state interposing itself to forbid other forms of environmental action. But ultimately, of course, it doesn't simply forbid environmental action. What happens is that it, people who are concerned about industrial impacts on human and ecological and agricultural health realize that the decisions about those things are not things that individuals can pursue, that it's only through electoral politics that one can engage, uh, that one can actually do something about this stuff because elected politicians have used their power to cut off forms of individual action through the courts. So we do start seeing local committees with mass memberships opposing industrial projects Sometimes they're Sierra Club chapters. So even though the national board of the Sierra Club generally is supportive of manufacturing steel and uh, running railroads and all that good stuff, and many of the people on that board are making their money that way, local chapters of the Sierra Club now have this flexibility to, in their own name, engage on other environmental issues. And so sometimes it's a union that takes the lead. Sometimes it's a citizens committee. Sometimes it's a Sierra Club chapter. But we do see through the progressive era um, a, uh, an expanding list of environmental issues that people are concerned about and yet a narrowing number of strategies that can be used to engage with those issues. 
Um, so that takes us up to the end of the progressive era. I see I've got a little more time. Uh, I'll just say a few words that will connect us uh, between 1926 and 45, because it'd probably be good to, to start up in like the 1940s uh, next episode. Now, the progressive era comes crashing down in two stages. Uh, we see it starting to fall apart in America first with the Republican presidents of the 1920s. The fact that Woodrow Wilson has the ultimate progressive plan for reordering the whole world um, has a stroke and is no longer able to complete it. Um, Americans retreat into market fundamentalism. So many progressive ideas about the control of free markets are rejected in the 1920s under Harding, Coolidge, Hoover. Uh, and, um, but not as much in Europe. And one of the other things that the end of the progressive era marks is the end of this period of substantial intellectual collaboration across the Atlantic that really English and Spanish speaking people in both hemispheres in a large number of countries were all in the same conversation about progress and eugenics and all that good stuff. You could walk into that conversation in Buenos Aires, you could walk into that conversation in Oslo, and it was the same conversation. Uh, Anglo-Americans were at their most literate in non-English languages at this point. Uh, it was the, the kind of multilingual literacy that is still associated with being a civilized person in Europe was part of a normative global sense of what it meant to be a civilized person. Uh, another thing that the progressive era ends in what ends in 1926 is this period called the immigration boom, where progressive countries in Oceania and the Western Hemisphere are focused on importing large numbers of Europeans to whiten their populations in order to accelerate progress. Uh, this is particularly an imperative in Brazil and the United States because they feel that there is this large amount of African blood in the population that needs to be diluted with European immigration. We see in, 19, the, in the mid-1920s an abrupt, very sudden shift. Canada and the US go from wanting masses of immigrants to suddenly cutting off most immigration. Uh, and we see the same in the other progressive states of the Western Hemisphere, uh, all within a couple of years. So, there's been this period of a big shared global conversation about the nature of progress. And then we see this hemispheric divergence. And another thing, of course, that brings about the hemispheric divergence is the world having to recognize in 1921 that the Soviet Union exists. And that obviously reshapes geopolitics significantly. We have this turn towards the parochial. Um, and in uh, and various forms of isolation taking place. And that and that certainly applies to environmental discourse. Um, there isn't uh, a shared global conversation about that anymore. And uh, the general opinion is, especially in the United States and Canada, that the progressive era gave too many concessions to ecosystems, uh, that it, um, that state action had put quite enough fences around trees and the like, and it was time to get back to 
listening to the wisdom of the free market. Obviously, that idea didn't last too long because we then see this descent into the Great Depression. One of the, and I want to talk not so much about the environmental discourse of the Great Depression, because there's very little, but there are some facts of the Great Depression in terms of uh, what happens to uh, the environment, to production and the like around the world. This is a period when global trade takes this terrible hit. Um, we, um, we already have, by the 1920s, um, you know, by 1904, Vladimir Lenin had been observing that Europe was deindustrializing and financializing its economy, moving its manufacturing to the semi-periphery, uh, et cetera. Used that knowledge to help pull off the Russian Revolution. So we do see a dramatic reduction in environmental impacts uh, in the 1930s um, because we see um, the hammering of the global transportation sector and we see demand contracting from the 1920s. In the 1920s, um, a lot of consumer demand, uh, because capitalism produces so much inequality, a lot of consumer demand was being sustained by consumer debt. And the stock market crash of the 1930s um, destroyed this installment plan culture that had been uh, part of the late progressive era. And uh, so we see all kinds of bank failures, but more importantly, all kinds of manufacturer and vendor credit schemes that are not formally part of the banking sector they really take a pasting. So we see this decline in consumer demand and we see more consumer demand being met within territories where um, the uh, goods are being consumed. Uh, there's uh, an interesting concept, a uh, scholar of uh, economics came up with called social disarticulation. It's a more precise way of talking about a specific aspect of being alienated from the means of production. Social disarticulation is this sense that what you do at work uh, as a worker and what you do in life as a consumer are totally unconnected. That you never see anything on your shelf that was made by you or your friends or anybody else. And the stuff that you make vanishes and you don't really know where it goes. Um, the profound sense of social disarticulation that increased steadily throughout the progressive era declined dramatically. And many, uh, and one of the ways in which, for instance, the Nazis were able to develop the kind of cohesive state uh, they, uh, they were and to produce social consensus in favor of all kinds of horrifying things um, was that you see that there incredible emphasis on local manufacturing and consumption, they're breaking unions, they're increasing inequality, but they're reducing social disarticulation. There's this sense that when you go to the store, it's continuous with being at work, and that your life as a consumer and your life as a producer are approaching each other. The world is making more material sense to you. And uh, so countries that take on vigorous import substitution policies to industrialize during the 1930s are many of the winners coming out of the 30s. Uh, obviously, Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy to a lesser extent. Mussolini had the rhetoric, didn't really have the implementation on reducing social disarticulation. 
The biggest success is uh, Brazil. Um, modeling, uh, giving itself the same name as the Portuguese uh, state, the Estado Novo, um, uh, Getulio Vargas uh, presided over a complete remaking of the Brazilian economy. Um, and it's this substratum of belief that Brazil is a manufacturing country it, that is, is embedded in Brazilian nationalism. It comes out of this period. One of the funny things about the industrial economies of the Southern Cone, uh, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, is, uh, the is biscuit nationalism because the first piece of import substitution industrialization that happens in the Southern Cone, when these European imports are just not showing up and there's this opportunity to industrialize, the easiest first factories to make are biscuit factories, that you go from these shitty tinned biscuits that you've been uh, importing from England to your own shitty tinned biscuits. And, um, there's tremendous attachment to cans of English style biscuits um, in the nationalisms of temperate South America. So one of the paradoxes we will encounter repeatedly and a paradox at which we're, the, at, we're at the crescendo of today, we see in the thirties already. People shut up about the environment. There isn't some ecological discourse, um, but the economic fundamentals actually reduce carbon emissions. They reduce uh, all these train trips. They reduce these big steamship trips. They, um, and, uh, and so you don't, um, so you see this smaller manufacturing, more decentralized, these are all green economic demands. But if you want to achieve green economic demands, you don't legislate them. They never happen if you legislate them. The way you do it is you plunge the world or at least your region into a crippling depression. And if you want to look at graphs of carbon emissions over the 20th century, you might enjoy comparing those CO2 graphs to, to the size of the global economy, whether we're in recession, whether we're in depression, et cetera. Because if you hit this planet with a hard enough recession, um, it's the only break we ever get in increases in carbon emissions, deforestation, et cetera. So, uh, all right, I think that's, uh, I think that that's got us sort of primed for uh, the Cold War. Um, uh, well, Jonathan, I, I don't know all the logistics of it, but the logistics industry is an enormous emitter and the simple elimination, uh, and it was usually the dirtiest emitter as well, right? It's the, that, you switch passenger rail to petroleum before you switch uh, freight rail to petroleum, all that sort of stuff. So I think the argument holds, um, but uh, yeah, these sm small material efficiencies in manufacturing are typically annihilated through the logistics industry. Um, unless you're really doing like port to port. Um, if you're only traveling through water, you could probably maintain some efficiencies. So my bet is that uh, the Banana Republic system probably didn't get any more or less um, environmentally problematic during that time. But once you're moving heavy things across land, uh, these little manufacturing efficiencies blow out pretty fast. Okay, other uh, questions, comments about stuff? Wow. Well, congratulations, everybody, on surviving another day of the heat wave. Uh, it's, uh, I know it's sapping morale in many places. Uh, Colton. I was just going to say, not only uh, are we in a heat wave, but I guess the 
smoky skies are coming back, at least where I live. Yeah, no, for, uh, the Alaska Highway is impassable past Fort Nelson now. The, uh, uh, yep. And then lightning will start striking the forests in a day or two. So, yeah, I think this is, this is a pretty difficult time. And uh, so congratulations, everyone, on just being here. Uh, it's going to start raining frogs next. Oh, it would be nice if we had enough frogs for that. We should have blood before frogs, no? There's no order. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> got rules, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, thank you. That, that improved the quality of my day just now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, yeah, now we now we just have the problem of, of selling the uh, green voter on, on the premise that our policy will be to destroy the economy and remove all their wealth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, I had really thought that uh, the Greens had the anti-growth thing baked in. I had no idea that I would be the last anti-growth leader the party had. <laughs> it, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a tough sell on the face of it. <laughs> it is. Okay. But the other stuff there, I'd rather have a thing that worked that was hard to sell than a thing that was easy to sell and didn't work. So, which is, I guess, the alternative... I uh, I don't know. It's funny, right? Like the city of West Vancouver uh, adopted the doctrine. There are weird parts of the political sphere that uh, adopted the doctrine. They adopted a doctrine of negative population growth. That was like one of the last things I did as leader of the party was to uh, explain using um, uh, showing how basic uh, aggregate demand uh, models uh, uh, were um, uh, were relevant to things other, you know, to uh, questions of uh, carrying capacity and all this other stuff. Anyway, of course, that's now turned into white nationalism in West Vancouver, as anything that stays in West Vancouver inevitably does. So now there's this, like, white nationalist slate running in their municipal election on a set of policies that could have been written by David Suzuki. So that should work out great for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> My friend Matt's mother was a West Van City councilor. She attained national fame for her bylaw to ban Persian restaurants. Oh, right. <laughs> so that city... But on the other hand, negative growth, easy sell. All right, folks, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, let everybody just get back to soaking in ice or whatever we were doing before and uh, see you folks on Monday. All right, I'll talk to you before that, Jonathan, because uh, we'll do the switch tomorrow on a bunch of the accounts. Right, okay. Hey, Good one. Children play Oh Lord, 